Hello and welcome to another episode of the Clinical Conversation podcast brought to you by the Trainee and Members Committee of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. My name is David Ryan and I am a Foundation Year 2 doctor based at St George's Hospital in London and a member of the Trainees and Members Committee. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Shao Lu, who's an ophthalmology doctor and clinical researcher at the University of Birmingham. He's also an expert in clinical AI. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Liu. And firstly, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in clinical AI? Thanks so much for having me here today, David. So I'm Xiao Liu. I'm, I'm an ophthalmology trainee in the West Midlands, and I'm also a clinical researcher that's been working on clinical AI evaluation for the last few years. So my research background started in ophthalmic test evaluation, and I learned a lot around the methodological aspects of how we evaluate tests um, during my PhD. And around a similar time, all these sort of algorithmic diagnostic tools were coming out in the machine learning world. And I just became very interested in the potential of AI algorithms and their applications in healthcare. And so I started doing some work looking at the methodological aspects of AI evaluation. I started looking at how we kind of critically appraise that evidence, whether it really has potential to improve healthcare delivery and patient care. And that's kind of how the journey began. So the aim for today's podcast is to discuss the current field of clinical AI, but also to start thinking about how doctors can start to critically appraise papers in the field so that we can better understand this rapidly advancing area of research. So kind of in a broad sense, what do we mean by artificial intelligence applied to the clinical field? Yeah, so AI or artificial intelligence or machine learning is a very, very wide field. I guess the broadest definition that we can give it is that it's a field of computational science where we are trying to create machines that can perform thinking functions like humans. That's a very broad and very vague statement. But uh, I suppose practically what that means is it's a field of computer science that focuses on complex mathematical functions that tries to understand data and draw from data inferences and observations and insights that perhaps humans might not be able to do. Mm-hmm. And clinical AI, I suppose, is uh, applying that science to healthcare, to medicine and to biology. So I guess it's drawing on a lot of other fields outside of the field of medicine. And can you tell us and share with our audience, how did you first start getting interested in this area? Yeah, so, well, I'm uh, an ophthalmologist and At the time I was working on um, my PhD, which was based around ophthalmic test evaluation. And my supervisors at the time, Dr. Pierce Keane from Moorfields Eye Hospital and Professor Alistair Denniston from Birmingham, were interested in using optical coherence tomography or OCT to diagnose diseases using artificial intelligence. And so that's kind of how the interest first arose. And in the first few years of my PhD, I undertook this huge systematic review on the diagnostic accuracy of deep learning algorithms 
for diagnosing diseases using imaging, not just in ophthalmology, but in any diseases. And doing that systematic review over the course of about a year and a half taught me a lot about the potential for AI in clinical medicine, what it could do, but also it gave me a, a real reality check as to how far along this journey we really were and how much work there was still to do. And I realized that there were lots of methodological issues with the studies that were being published and the field really needed clinical domain experts like doctors to be really engaged in the research that was happening. And so I kind of, I suppose that gave me the knowledge that I needed to become involved, but also the insight of where I could best help uh, this field of research move forward. And so journey kind of got started. That's really fascinating. And I guess at the moment, there's quite a lot of hype around clinical AI. We see studies that report results, you know, that are better than, than human experts for diagnosing various conditions. But have there been any, you know, examples of current uses of clinical AI, you know, actually being implemented within, you know, patient flow, uh, within hospitals? You know, what is the current state of play in this? Is it mostly still research or is there any any examples actually being brought from code to clinic? Mm -hmm. So um, there's a huge amount of research happening in this field. And just to give you some idea of magnitude, that systematic review that I was just talking about, which we published in um, 2019 in Lancet Digital Health, that included over 20,000 studies, which were published over a seven-year period which is a huge amount. And most of the included studies in that review were in fact published in the, in the years between 2018 and 2019. So it's a massive area of growth, this field of clinical AI research. But are there any being in widespread use now? So in the UK, at least, there aren't any that are in widespread deployment in the NHS. There are... Um, a growing number of AI algorithms that have received regulatory approval now internationally as medical devices. So that applies to uh, Europe, the UK, and also in the US. There was a paper published in Nature Medicine earlier on this year that listed 65 FDA-approved algorithms as medical devices. And later on in the year, the American College of Radiologists have listed over 70 algorithms for diagnosis in radiology alone. So it's definitely growing. But in terms of widespread deployment in the UK, at least in our NHS, we haven't seen that yet. There are a number of local pilots happening with kind of uh, locally agreed evaluations, either in hospitals or with CCGs. And there is also a sort of evaluation process that's now in place. So we had the first round of the AI in Health and Care Award, which is £140 million funded by the Accelerated Access Collaborative with the NIHR and NHSX. The whole purpose of that funding scheme is to evaluate the potential of these AI technologies within the NHS with a view to widespread deployment for the most promising tech. So it's definitely coming but the amount of research that's being done is still outweighing the actual applications in real life deployment at the moment. And I know a lot of your work in the past while has been around developing the area of clinical AI research, in particular the methodological and reporting 
guidelines for these trials. I know you've been instrumental in setting up the Concert AI and Spirit AI guidelines. So can you tell me a little bit more about this work, please? Yeah, so the Spirit and Consort guidelines, so not the AI ones, the Spirit and Consort guidelines are a set of reporting guidelines for clinical trial protocols and clinical trial reports. And they were originally developed with with the intention of being agnostic to any health interventions. So they are methodological guidelines to make sure that when an author publishes a trial protocol or a trial report, that they provide the minimum information that enables editors, reviewers, and readers to understand them. And so what people have done over the years is that as new trial designs have come about and new interventions that warrant additional considerations is they've added a number of extensions. And so the Spirit AI and Consult AI extensions are specific for health interventions that involve artificial intelligence. And the way that you use them is that they're a checklist And so say um, if you were wanting to publish a clinical trial report, then at the point of submission, you would use the consort guidelines. Or if if it happens that your guideline is for an AI intervention, you would use the consort AI guidelines. You would take the checklist, which will be in the instructions to authors from the journal, and then you would write next to each item where you've addressed that item. So if it's something like describe how you randomize the patient cohort, you would say, well, on page three, line, whatever, I have described this. And so it makes sure that all the publications at the point of submission are reporting what they should. And so the AI guidelines do that, but for AI-specific considerations. And you mentioned then that, you know, there was quite a lot of methodological issues with a lot of the research. What were the kind of the big areas that you saw could have been improved in the research around clinical AI? Yeah, so initially there was a huge reporting gap. So that was the main finding, actually, of the systematic review I keep referring back to. We found that often it was very difficult to judge uh, whether there were potential biases. And it was also very difficult to replicate the studies that were being done because they just weren't being reported in a complete and transparent way. And as with all research, we need the reporting to be done in a way that allows um, reviewers and readers to critique it, to be able to judge whether there are potential biases, and also for others to be able to replicate those evaluations. And then for the people who are thinking of deploying these to be able to do it as it was done in the trial. And we just couldn't do that with the small number of studies that eventually Uh, were robust enough to even be considered in this systematic review. So that was one of the issues. There were also methodological flaws uh, that we were discovering in 2019, like many of these algorithms weren't being evaluated in external validations. That's to say, the algorithms weren't being tested on data that was different to the type of data that it was trained on. And this is a really important consideration for AI algorithms particularly because they have a tendency to overfit and have a tendency to learn spurious correlations within the training data that's perhaps nothing to do with the task that it's actually designed to do. So, I mean, that sounds a little bit abstract, but an example might be if you have an AI algorithm 
that's designed to detect pneumonia in a chest X-ray, because the algorithms are so sensitive to the very minute differences within the imaging data, it can pick up changes that perhaps a human eye won't pick up. And it can learn those features as spurious correlates and then start trying to make predictions off of them, which are nothing to do with the disease. And so because of the tendency for AI to do that, we always, always must test it on in, in an external validation. That's to say, if you collect images of x-rays from one hospital, you train your algorithm, you do it in initial testing, you get amazing accuracy, you should always test it using data from another hospital or another setting, uh, another population, just to make sure that that performance still holds up. So that was another one of the problems that we were seeing in many of the studies. How would you envisage a clinical AI, you know, randomized controlled trial to be different to a, a standard randomized controlled trial with traditional interventions, such as, you know, different drugs, for example? Is there considerations we need to make in terms of study design? Yeah, so the the things that make a randomized control trial, a randomized control trial will remain the same. So in many aspects, we are evaluating an AI health intervention, just like any other health intervention. And what that means is the aspects around how you select your population, how you randomize your cohorts, how you, you know, calculate a sample size to answer your research question, to look for your primary outcome. Those things will all remain the same. But what will be different is the way that the intervention is delivered. As you know, we have been working on the Spirit AI and Consult AI reporting guidelines. And these are a number of considerations which sit on top of normal recommendations from the original Spirit and Consult statements, which carry a number of generic considerations for clinical trial protocols and reports. But the AI-specific items address these extra concerns around the data and the way that's handled as it is presented to the algorithm and the way that the algorithm then outputs. So there are a number of different items that are included, but just to give some examples here, we ask authors to talk about how the input data for the algorithm is selected, how it's acquired, whether it's pre-processed, you know, is there cropping enhancements and things going on to say images, and then how the algorithm displays its output. So how then the person at the other end of the algorithm will interpret its recommendations and how that then leads to treatment further down the line. So I suppose the things that are different for an AI clinical trial compared to a clinical trial of, say, a drug or a surgical intervention is mainly the way that you deliver that intervention. And some of that is related to the tech components, the AI components, the data components, and some of it's relating to the way it interacts with other health professionals. And one of the main concerns around the growing use of AI in healthcare is the potential for error. And what happens when a machine or an algorithm makes one of these errors? How do you know these studies address those concerns? How do we make sure in these studies that safety is appropriately assessed? So this is really important. And this comes down to one of the biggest fundamental problems with AI, which is around trust. As with any health intervention, there's the risk for error. And 
we as doctors are familiar that we have mechanisms set up to avoid them. You know, we we have steps to perform double checks, to we have checklists, and we also have mechanisms for auditing when errors do happen. We have adverse reporting mechanisms set up so that we can feed that back to the regulators and the developers. And it's a similar sort of situation with AI. So first of all, is developing it in a way that reduces its likelihood to learn something that's just wrong, to avoid erroneous outputs from the algorithm by design. And that's the role for the developers, but it also is important that healthcare workers are involved in the development process. So we can inform things like, do you have the right data to train this algorithm? Do you have the right data to validate this algorithm? Is the information, the sort of um, user interface designed in a way that is least confusing and it can easily be used the way it should be? And when that's done, well, we deploy these algorithms or we evaluate them in, in the context of a clinical trial. And something that's really important that we should be doing is not just looking at say it's a diagnostic algorithm, not just looking at the errors that an algorithm makes in a sort of aggregate way, which is the way that we normally report these studies, right? We say this algorithm that's diagnosing arrhythmias got it right 99% of the time, and then 1% of the time it just got it wrong. And then we don't really investigate further as to how, why, and when. One of the things that we've been recommending is that we should be interrogating these errors more closely particularly for AI, because AI has a tendency to make errors which are unpredictable, which seem confusing to humans. They can be extremely sensitive to small changes in the way that the input data is acquired. So for example, you can have an algorithm that works perfectly well with one generation of, I don't know, CT scanners, and then a small upgrade in the hardware can completely throw off the algorithm because it's so acutely sensitive to small changes. And so we say that when you experience errors, we should be trying to unpick why they've happened, trying to spot patterns in them and potential failure modes. And it really requires the people who, well, it requires everyone. It requires the developers. It requires the person that's evaluating the algorithm, but also it really requires the people who are on the ground, the radiographers, the clinicians, the healthcare workers to be able to spot these potential error modes. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really fascinating area that we need to have a lot of consideration of as well with the implementation of any new change within a healthcare setting. So you discussed a lot about research and the requirements that we need to take when we read these papers, critically appraise them. But you mentioned earlier about barriers to implementation within the NHS and other healthcare systems. Primarily, how would you characterize these barriers? What would the main barriers be, do you think? Well, I, I think there are a number of barriers that are facing us right now. And some of them we've touched on a bit already. So there is still a, an evidence gap in terms of do these AI algorithms really improve healthcare? Do they really improve outcomes for patients? I think we have a lot of evidence suggesting that they might be able to do certain tasks better, like diagnostic tasks, disease prediction tasks. But what, we, what we're lacking are studies that really look at patient outcomes. And by outcomes, I mean things like, do they improve quality of life? Do they improve access to healthcare, time to diagnosis, morbidity, mortality, 
we don't see yet many studies that look at outcomes. And we also don't have many studies yet that are prospective. So many of them are sort of done in silico. You know, you get data set A, you train your algorithm, you get data set B, you test your algorithm, and this is the accuracy. And it's, it's done retrospectively and sort of in silico. And out of the small number of prospective studies that are being done, there aren't many that are truly comparative. So we're not really getting randomized trials um, happening just yet. There are a number, many of them are in gastroenterology and endoscopy, but we've not really seen many trials yet. And we know that the randomized control trial is the highest hierarchy of evidence within medicine. They can give us really good quality of evidence that one intervention is equivalent or better than another. And within AI, we just haven't seen so much of that yet. So we'll hopefully start seeing more of these in the next few years. Other barriers, which I think are also really important. So there's, there's the issue of trust. And that means trust by the users, trust by patients and the public. We need assurance that these are safe that the regulatory mechanisms that ensure that they are safe and continue to be safe are robust. And there's issues around accountability and who will ultimately carry the oversight of these algorithms and the way that they behave or misbehave is still a little unclear. And then the other, the other point I think is really important, we need to work this out soon, is upskilling of clinical staff. And I feel quite passionately about this because I know lots of clinicians nowadays are interested in digital health, interested in artificial intelligence. And often, you know, I'm speaking to enthusiastic junior doctors or medical students and they're asking, how do I learn how to code? And, um, and then we often kind of have this conversation about how actually your biggest value in this space is not learning how to code, but it's your domain expertise as a clinician. But you need to learn just enough to be able to interact with the developers of AI, to be able to understand the principles of them. And I think our biggest role is going to be around understanding the limitations of AI, understanding how to critique the evidence, and then creating processes and pathways on the ground in the clinical space for monitoring the safety of these algorithms, monitoring their efficacy, um, monitoring whether they're being used as intended or if there's, you know, intended or unintended misuse and being able to audit them and maintain that sort of boundary of safety. Can you tell us a little bit about the future role of the doctor? AI will change um, our attention to where it's really needed, give us more time, give us more room to do the things that only a physician can do. Take away some of the admin tasks, take some of the kind of well patients out of our care and leave us with the complex bits of medicine that so I think we'll see we'll see a different spectrum of disease in terms of the, the patients that we are directly caring for. But I think a really important part of our role is going to be understanding these algorithms that we'll be using every day as tools, just like a doctor has to understand an ECG, just like how we have to understand the limitations of an ABG or, you know, artifacts that we can see in a chest x-ray. We, we need to know this tool that is in our belt is working as it should be. And um, this is when I can rely on it. This is when I can't rely on it. And this is when I need to take over using my human brain and my domain expertise. 
And so I think we will be playing a key role. It's it's not going to be, you know, doctors are over here and AI is over there. It will definitely be something that we'll be interacting on, I think, on a, on a daily basis. And it will take understanding of what the AI can do and what it can't do, and then being ready to communicate that to each other, to the patients, and step in when we reach the boundaries of what it can't do. So you don't imagine us being replaced anytime soon? No, not at all. You... <laughs> you notice I didn't at one at one point say replace. I, I don't think so at all. I think it will become a tool in our toolbox. I think it will be one that we like using. It will be something that we will eventually feel very comfortable with. But there is this kind of stepping stone that we will need to undergo. I think medical education will change. We will need curricula, which upskills our next generation of doctors to understand this i think we'll have departments or teams set up to oversee the safety and efficacy of ai tools in hospitals so you know no i don't think we're, our jobs are going to be taken away by ai at all no, that's a bit of a relief <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time today and and for sharing your experience and expertise i think it's been really informative highlighting considerations that we as clinicians need to take in starting to investigate and implementing clinical AI tools within a healthcare system. I think it's really important to recognize the limitations of these tools as well as their potential. We'll have a link to the Consort AI and Spirit AI papers. And I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast, which is brought to you today by the Trainee and Members Committee of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.